What is growth hacking? Like everyone's heard the term. It's a process of experimentation across really all of the levers of growth. So going across the full customer journey from consideration of a product to becoming a active, valuable user. Product team is about expanding potential and the growth team is about fulfilling potential. What's that thing that caused the person to grab the bud off the shelf in the 7-Eleven instead of the Coors Light? Hi, I'm Craig Kirsteins. And I'm Remus Silkaitis. And you're listening to Practical Product, a bi-weekly series where we discuss product management and some of the unique challenges we face in dealing with defining the right product and all of the coordination necessary to help teams build it right. Practical Product is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at practicalproduct at heavybit.com or on Twitter at Practical Product. So welcome back to another episode of Practical Product. Uh, I'm Craig. And I'm Rebus. Uh, and today we're here with uh, Sean Ellis, who actually coined the term growth hacking. So uh, we can all thank him for all of our opinions that we have about growth hacking. But let's just kind of, uh, I, I'm just curious to jump in right there. Can you like summarize it in like one sentence, two sentences? Is that possible? I mean, we're going to spend maybe 30 minutes sure. on the subject. But like, <laughs> what is growth hacking? Like everyone's heard the term. Like you, you coined it. What would you say it is? And, and there are a bunch of definitions out there. So I'm glad you asked that. Uh, it is not just creative marketing, which is what a lot of people kind of think of growth hacking as. It's it's much it's a little less bo- or a little more boring maybe than that. It's uh, it's it's a process of experimentation across really all of the levers of growth. So basically, going across the full customer journey from consideration of a product to becoming a active, valuable user, yeah, somebody who's who's talking about the product. All the experimentation you can do across that journey to improve growth. So I, I hope we didn't put any people in a sleep. Like that actually sounds like real product work there, not like a magic bullet. No, that's that's that, I think that's the biggest confusion is that a lot of people just think it's you know it, that's exciting stuff to present on that attracts a lot of people when you say here's 22 magic bullets guaranteed to grow your business people want to listen to it but uh, unfortunately most of the time those don't work and if they do it's fleeting growth that uh, that disappears really fast yeah and I think there's you know there's the great exceptions to that we've seen like you know there's Dropbox and some of what they've done to to grow user growth and I think you know. Uber and there's some good examples of like a few like tricks that have worked really well, but there's also like how do you do this very sustainably, repeatedly? One and and having been the first marketer at Dropbox, I can tell you that at the source of all of those tricks was a super valuable product experience. That if people didn't stick around and and stay retained on that product experience, they would not have grown to the size they are today. Uh, Interesting. We talk about uh, well, let's dive into this. So it's. what I'm hearing is that it's really about retention. Is that is that is that what we're talking about at the heart of all of this? So it's about retained growth. So okay. retention is a critical part of it, but it's about understanding the value that a product delivers. And instead of instead of trying to grow registrations or trying to grow some kind of number that doesn't necessarily reflect that value, it's about getting people to an experience with a product where they say, "Oh my God, I can't live without this." And optimizing all of your efforts to get as many people to that experience as possible. And that's how you grow a business. It's not just about sort of having them hit a website. So uh, warning to all of the uh, listeners out there, you better have a good product first before you start doing any of this other stuff. Is that correct? (laughs) It is, but it's kind of interesting because people say, well, then you're just, you're really just relying on a good product. And a good product is not just 
is not just something that happens. A good product is also about getting the right people to use the product in the right way. And that's a, a lot of what growth is. It's find your most passionate users first, mm -hmm. learn everything you can about them, and then figure out how to get more people who have the same needs to the same experience in the product and set the right expectations and reduce the friction of, of getting to that experience. I think that sums up, you know, how I think about product management really well. Like, I think uh, Marty Kagan actually talked about, like, product management is making sure you built the right product. Engin engineering is making sure it's built the right way. And that's a kind of a cohesive, you know, cycle. Now, okay, so we've dispelled kind of some of the ideas already really quickly about growth hacking. Yeah. So, okay, this, this actually sounds more interesting from a product perspective. Like, I want to jump in and say, like, retained growth like, that sounds super sustainable for my business. This is interesting. There's a bunch of facets to it. And I'm going to jump in, and I'm just going to post a listing for a growth hacker as my next step? Not necessarily. So um, I think, one, if you post a listing for a growth hacker, you're probably going to get the wrong type of person applying because they're probably the uh, magic tricks guy. Um, but you ultimately, the, it's depending on the size of the company. If, it's a, if you're a super early-stage company, then maybe you do want someone who's super creative and it's going to help kind of kickstart that growth, but they should at least be thinking about it holistically and getting people to a valuable experience. What is super early stage? Is that five so like, people? Is that 20? Like when I was 100? at Dropbox, there were seven people. Okay. So, so that that's was super that was early stage. Super, okay. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think we have a lot of listeners, you know, we have probably some at that five, seven stage. We have some at 20, 25. We have people, you know, hundred person companies. So I'm yeah. sure larger, but like a full spectrum there. Right. So, and then as you get bigger, as you get to even 50 people or 100 people, then, then it's much more of a team effort. It's this cross-functional effort where you know, traditional organizations are basically built with silos where a customer journey is, is happening. It starts with the marketing team, maybe interacts with the sales team a little bit, then the product team gets in there. There might be some customer support or success along the way, and it's really hard to coordinate that journey, and there's a lot of competing metrics along the way. What growth teams have done is that they, they're really organized across that full customer journey. They're cross-functional. They have a North Star metric that really defines value delivered, aggregate value delivered to customers, and that's what they're optimizing their efforts on. So there's a lot of coordination with, you know, usually you can't just rip out those silos and replace it with this brand new organization, but you, you do have, uh, you know, different organizations are kind of built differently. So Sometimes growth teams sit within the product team. Sometimes they're, they're autonomous and they sit separately. But ultimately, what you're trying to do is, is coordinate the efforts of the full company to maximize the number of people who have a great experience with the product and, uh, and you know, continue to have a good experience with the product. So I think that makes a lot of sense right off. Like you've got a 20-person you know, marketing team. You've got a 10-person product team. You've got a 50-person engineering team. You can't just say, hey, guys, go all be cross-functional now. Right. Um, I, I think I've seen, you know, ways where you, you've taken a, a part of a product and said, hey, you're gonna be, we're going to build out a cross-functional team across this. Um, you own your own kind of marketing for it, acquisition of customers for this feature, and, you know, there is some cross-collaboration there. Yeah. So in a sense, you know, while not necessarily a growth team, kind of imitating some of that cross-functional because it allows you to do things you couldn't previously. Right. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, what would you say, because you mentioned, like, there's this kind of cross-functional growth team. Who's in that team? What's it look like? What it, What's the, you know, makeup of that? Yeah, so really, like, the way that I recommend companies build it, they they start borrowing resources from a lot of people. So it might just be a single 
kind of product manager person who's who's running it that I like to call the growth master, who's basically coordinating efforts across teams and and trying to run experiments where they're borrowing resources from multiple teams. But if they're finding that they can never get a designer to work with them, then that might be the, the time to go and get a dedicated designer for that team. If they can never get an engineer to work with them from the engineering team, then add a dedicated engineer. So I like to actually start, not say, let's define the perfect growth team. In six months, we'll be done building it, and then we can start growing this way. I like to think, how, how do we start growing this way today? And what are the bottlenecks to running the testing that is needed to ultimately discover better ways to grow the business? And then let's hire to fill those bottlenecks. Now, you mentioned one thing in there that, you know, product managers can be kind of the great kind of spearhead of this, which, of course, because they're perfect for everything. Um, but, uh, like, is this happen on a, you know, a full-time basis, a part-time, like, how does that kind of structure? Like, it's It's usually a full-time. So there should be like a full-time you actually see the title in a lot of companies, product manager of growth. So it, it is, it is a typical profile of the person who would be running it inside a company. And the support they're getting is the rest of the team, are they pulling off a designer kind of full-time into that team, part-time effort? Is it, it, that, that really depends. So if a part-time designer is getting the job done you know, or, or a part of the designer's time is getting the job done, then that's great. You don't necessarily need to put a new designer in there, but most designers don't want to do prototype fast work every week. And so a lot of times a designer is somebody who's hard to get. So over time you start to have, you know, a, a designer, maybe some analysts, even some, some marketing and copyright writer type people, uh, products, um, but, you know, kind of, yeah, front end, back end engineer. I mean, there's a lot of kind of different different things that can come together to to form the team. But it's uh, I again, I I don't like to try to define the perfect team up front because you just don't know where what types of experiments you want to run. Yeah, right. Yeah, it all that all makes sense. What are, what are some of the risks that you find you know relative to to building these teams out? Right. I mean, because you know we talk about pulling resources from other places. You know, what are some of the perils or pitfalls that you know, if we were to speak a little bit more tactically, someone that is trying to do this stuff is going to run into. So, you know, ultimately, you know, nothing, nothing, you don't grow the business until you, until you try stuff. Like action is what leads to results. Mm-hmm. And it, for, for a growth team, testing is the action that if, if it works, then you do more of it. And so I think one of the big risk factors that I see is that teams just spend a lot of time talking and brainstorming and they get just they go down these big kind of brainstorming rat holes and you know the more senior people they're bringing into that session eventually people start checking out and then they don't have the they don't have kind of the power to get things done because your vp of marketing wants no part of it your vp of you know, engineering wants no part of it and without their support it's really hard to push the test through that you need done so i think that's where having a very structured process where you're building a backlog of ideas. You're having a one-hour, very structured meeting each week of deciding which experiments you're going to run. Mm-hmm. You're focusing those experiments based on what the data is telling you are high-leverage opportunities in the business. So if you're having a retention problem, is it because the product's really bad or is it because people aren't using the product right in the first place? So that's usually the case with a lot of companies is that one of the highest leverage areas is that they should be focused on that first user experience and activation. And so setting an objective around that, running a bunch of experiments until you find that you're not improving as much, 
then you move on to a different area. So I think that, that there's a very systematic process to being able to, to being able to execute and grow. And that's, that's the learning curve for a lot of companies is, is understanding that process and following it. And, and does this apply to the, the single individual that's maybe at a startup, like that growth PM that you're talking about, as well as the larger organization that maybe is, you know, thousand person company, et cetera, that has maybe a small department doing this stuff. Yeah. So the super early stage company, you, you don't need as much process and structure. Just, just go out there and start trying a lot of stuff. You see some signal, do some more of it. Kind of, you, you can, you can be pretty agile because this is a fairly agile growth process. Mm-hmm. Agility gets harder, the bigger you get. And so you need to be very kind of purposeful around the agility to try. But the most important part, though, is the process, though. It, it, it is this kind of cycle that you're going through. Yeah, but again, I think that cycle, it's okay to be a little sloppy in a super early stage company with that process because, you know, initially you're fighting for survival. Most right. most super early stage companies, they don't have a single channel that's working. <laughs> they, the chan- like, so log me in would be a good example. I, I ran marketing there for five years and my I initially was that guy. I was I was the the sole marketing guy trying to grow the company. Eventually, I added a couple of other people in the in the kind of early days. But we, what I found is that I could not develop channels because we had such a bad activation problem. Mm-hmm. And so I I got to the point where even just getting control of landing pages was really hard at that time. How did you even kind of get to that? Like, how far was it until you real had that realization? And how how did you get to that? I'm kind of curious of like how do you know if you have an activation problem? So I looked at, I, I was getting about a thousand people a day to sign up for the product. I, I, and then I was, I was ultimately trying to optimize my spend on a dollar spent. Do I get at least a dollar back? And what I found is I could scale to about $10,000 a month in spending. When I try to spend 11,000, I was, I was wasting the money. And so mm-hmm trying and being super creative about that. I, I, I just could not find the channels to grow the business. And then when I looked at, okay, so I'm, I'm able to get a fairly reasonably cost person to sign up for the product. What happens after that? When I look, you know, 90 plus percent of the people were not actually using the product. And so if I don't get them to use the product, and that's, that's like outside of my area of control, and you know, and the market, uh, the the product team sort of has a product roadmap, and they're thinking about all these other great features that we can do. So you've got all of this marketing dollars just kind of being wasted in no man's land. And so once we actually documented the path to using the product and where we were losing people, it became clear that we were going to have a really hard time growing that business if these people are signing up and not using the product. And so fortunately, we had a CEO who was super responsive when I presented the data to him. And he said, you know, this needs to be a full company effort. This is the most important thing we're focusing on for the next you know, few months. And we were able to get about a thousand percent improvement in the number of people who actually use the product after signing up. And what that did from freeing me up on the marketing side, I now could spend a million dollars a month on customer acquisition with a positive return on investment with no new channels. So mm-hmm. the exact same channels that previously scaled to, to 10,000 now scaled to a million. And it wasn't just the, the set that scaled to 10,000, but a lot of channels that just didn't work at all suddenly became viable now. So I think that's kind of, that for me was the epiphany that marketing by itself does not work very well to grow a business. As everybody else becomes data-driven, there's, there's just this kind of interdependency that happens between conversion, marketing, retention, like the, that full customer journey needs to be right so that you can actually compete in the channels. Yeah, I think I've heard this from, you know, uh, 
companies that have issues where there's this disconnect between marketing and sales and kind of product where, you know, marketing has their quota of marketing qualified leads. Right. Sales has their, hey, we need more leads from marketing and marketing just piping the, the funnel with like whatever they can. Right. And it's like, this isn't more qualified. It's just a lead because you could say you could have one. Sales is saying, I want better stuff in the funnel, but I also want more. And then you've got products saying like, Hey, I, like I care about lifetime value. I care about retention of customers. Like, yeah, I get these people and they're here for three months and they're gone because they're not the right ones. Right. And like rethinking that. And you mentioned you had a CEO there that you, you pitched this and he got it. Like that actually sounds like a fairly key thing to be rethinking this because like, how do I come in and say like, I have this problem. Like maybe it's activation, maybe it's retention. Um, maybe it's just acquisition. Like, how do you like reframe the organization around that? Or do you just say, hey, here's this one team. They're off on their side and they can do whatever. How, do, how does that work? So a lot of it's just scenario planning where you just, you just kind of say, where, where are we losing people in our funnel? Like just present your funnel. Where are the leaks in our funnel? And what would happen if we plug those leaks? What, what would happen to our MRR? Like from, you know, if we spent the exact same amount and now we converted twice as many people, what would happen to our MRR? probably go up quite a bit. What if, if we, you know, in SaaS in particular, retention is such a huge part of SaaS. If you have a 5% churn rate and you have a thousand customers every month, you lose 50 customers and you need to, you need to add 50 customers not to shrink. So when you're the marketer in a SaaS business, you, you know that if there's a churn problem in that business, you're, you're going to have a really hard time growing that business. And so it, it, I think some of this stuff has just become more obvious as as tracking has gotten better, and it's it's usually not a hard case to make. It's I think the hard part is is reorienting the business around the solution. So the the problem is not that hard to identify. The solution and implementing solutions kind of tough. I got a crazy question. Has have you found any teams that aren't data driven that are that are trying to grow businesses? And, and have been successful? I mean, there's definitely teams. There, there's, uh, I think there, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, especially like kind of in, in some of the older businesses um, and, and marketers for a long time, there's, there's sort of the, most online marketers are pretty data-driven, but there's, there's the kind of creative marketers that, um, well, we're, we're building brand. We're not, we're not actually trying to grow customers right now, or, you know, that's not our key metric, but awareness has gone way up or, sentiment around the brand has gone way up. And so like they, I think that they, they, they're driven by data, but it's kind of self-serving data where they maybe have a little less accountability to actual results in the business. I've, I've always kind of wondered how like a, you know, a Procter and Gamble, right? Like how do they measure impact of the commercials? They like, it, it, it's completely beyond my grasp being, you know, an online digital kind of dev tools yeah. guy. I'm like, and they apparently have their metrics, but it's beyond me on how you even kind of measure. Yeah, something. I think about it like with beer commercials. What like what's what's that thing that caused the person to grab the bud off the shelf in the Seven Eleven instead of the Coors Light? Or, yep. You know, like, yep, completely. <laughs> so I, I think that's one of the things that I find really interesting about super early stage companies is that you you have a lot less variables, you have a lot more tracking, and so for me, that's you know a lot of my career was just being passionate about actually running experiments and seeing what would happen and trying to just kind of figure out things that used to be the, in the John Wanamaker days. The, uh, I know half my budget is wasted. I just don't know which half. Like Today, people know which half is wasted. They just don't know where to redeploy that budget to make it effective. So like they just they run out of uh, pay, places to spend money and not waste it. 
So you, we, we covered a good bit of like, okay, it's, you know, identifying the experiments, running them, you know, uh, looking at the results. And then where does it go from there? Like, do you just flip it on, keep doing more of that? Like, how does that tie back into the rest of the org? Like, what's the long-term role of the, that, that kind of growth team that you built it out? How do they tie back in? Are they kind of their own carve out and do they become their own functional team? How does that kind of work in time? I think that, that you know, ultimately... The interesting that I, thing that I've seen kind of from product teams sometimes is that they talk about they want to have this great product experience, but they but growth is not something that they're necessarily that interested in, and even founders sometimes. And you start out trying to solve a problem because people are people are suffering, and if you're not if you're not spreading that solution, there's no impact against that problem. You've created you created a, a solution that's kind of just collecting dust, and so. I think that's kind of a mental shift across the organization is that people need to realize that the, the goal, once you've created something that's valuable that solves a real problem for people is you want to solve it for as many people in the best way using this product. And so I do think that there's a mental shift that happens across the whole company around growth, regardless of what is part of the growth team versus the product team. I actually heard at, at Uber a really good description that the product team is about expanding potential and the growth team is about fulfilling potential. Hmm. And it kind of makes sense. I mean, I think they were kind of saying it in terms of some of like the new initiatives like Uber Eats or th yeah. things that, uh, you know, the growth team is really about kind of trying to push the envelope on that solution for, for better or worse with all the kind of discussions that may or may be happening around some of those companies. Sure. But the, um, but ultimately I think the, the the idea of a north star metric is something that um, I I think probably came out of Facebook. Um, it's the the first ones to really use it, where everyone within the company, starting from the CEO, said, you know, this we are optimizing for not just new people signing up for the platform or not just accounts on the platform, but monthly active users and eventually down to daily active users and other companies that have been really effective with growth, like Airbnb, it's nights booked, but they're they're essentially identifying the value creation event and trying to maximize those value creation events rather than just new listings on the platform or new guests on the platform, but they're, they're, they're actually defining what creates value and, and value creates, creates retention and, and retention is critical for driving long-term sustainable Yeah, growth. I think that was what you, you just kind of answered my next question right there before I could even get it out is like, what's that metric for me, right? For my business. And it, it's kind of like, what is that, you know, uh, value driving lever there? That, mm -hmm. that drives retention, that drives life, long time, lifetime value. So I think that like, yeah, that's spot on. Like if you know what that is, you're driving up overall kind of the valuation of your company and, and what you're doing in the world. Right. And that's, and, and when I work with companies, that's uh, the first thing that I do with every company that I've worked with. I'm, I'm still doing a little bit of consulting, even though I'm the CEO of a company just to, just to be able to tinker on, on companies and develop, continue to develop my skill set. But the first thing that I do is, I figure out who are the users who consider the product a must-have. So I ask them a, one survey question, which is, how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? And I'm, I'm looking at the people who answer, very disappointed. I ignore the somewhat disappointed. Very disappointed means it's a must-have for those people. And I'm trying to understand what is the benefit that they get from the product? What is the experience with the product that delivers on that benefit? And now, how do I create a North Star metric that reflects an expansion of that experience, and then how do I ultimately optimize the path to that experience and pour as many of the right people into that funnel as possible? 
does any of this like roll back into product roadmap and how does it inform that product roadmap? It should. I mean, I, I, I haven't tried to kind of tackle the product roadmap piece, just, you know, one, one at a time. <laughs> I had a hard enough time with product people saying, what the heck are you doing with, with some of the, you're a marketing guy. So, um, you know, to I know, start go saying, back to marketing land, like yeah, my product alone to start saying, let me give you some pointers on your roadmap. I think would have probably got me thrown out the door pretty quickly. Interestingly, product people more and more are are starting to realize that there's some real value in, you know, once you understand the, the core value that the product delivers, then doubling down and, and figuring out which, which features on the roadmap are an expansion of that value and which are kind of new beachheads or like guesses. So you mentioned kind of like early on that, you know, product people are, are good kind of candidates for these early growth teams. Um, the show is, you know, practical product. Like mm -hmm. it sounds like there's a lot in here that product managers can take and just apply today, even to existing kind of product orgs teams. Like what can they, you know, if they're struggling to, to form this growth team or uh, maybe they, they need to run it, you know, within their product team to kind of get the buy-in first, like what can they take away right away that's tactical that they can say, hey, I can do this tomorrow. Uh, to start to apply a lot of the principles. Because I'm, I'm yeah. hearing that a lot of the principles can be applied in almost any org if you have that cross-functional kind of capability. Right. So my, my big recommendations would be try to define what your North Star metric is. And part of that is try to define what the core value of the product is. And then work backwards to what is the earliest part in the customer experience that delivers a taste of that. So um, Why earliest? Why not most important why not? earliest because it's sort of like time to value there's so many things that people can be doing so many products that they can be looking at that you're gonna lose a lot of people in the period of consideration to value and so you want to you want to just understand this is the what we call the aha moment or the point of activation um, facebook's kind of famous for their seven friend or ten friends in seven days like they, they realize long-term retention correlates to if they can get somebody with 10 friends in seven days, that that person is very likely to stick around long-term on there. So once you know that as a top-of-funnel goal, then, then you're, you're doing everything you can to get people there quickly. Because it's, it's easy to say, I'm going to optimize for long-term retention, but it, it takes you months to figure out, did, I, did it work or not? And you've got a really like slow feedback loop on that. But if you can work out to this aha moment, and data can tell you it, and also also kind of intuition can tell you as well. So I like to start with the intuition and then see if the data backs that up. And then ultimately, that is kind of your first goal. And then so we, we talked about what are the actions that somebody can do today. Understand that must-have experience and, and your North Star metric. Understand that activation moment. And then start to run tests. So you don't even have to change anything in your organization. Just hold yourself accountable for the number of tests that you're running. So Twitter, despite, again, a company who's had some issues lately, um, Twitter ha actually flattened out in their growth in 2010. They had almost a completely flat quarter at the end of 2010. A new VP of product, so coming from product, came in and said, guys, we run like one experiment or two experiments a month that's not enough experiments to be able to grow this. And so he ended up cranking it up to 10 experiments per week. Hmm. As soon as they did that, growth resumed for, for several years after that. So I think you know, the biggest predictor of, of growth is actually 
is actually experiments or not experiments. And then everything after that becomes, how do I figure out the best experiments to run? How do I get smarter about where I target the energy of running those experiments? Sure. And I'm curious to drill in a little bit to that too. But uh, first, like, you know, for this, the smaller guys out there just trying to get started, like not Twitter, 10 a week sounds exhausting. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't I mean, suggest for a small, it's smaller Twitter. Like, it's I, a, like, I think it's a simple product. It's 140 characters. Like, how do, what do you experiment with? I'm, whoa, I'm just whoa, like, slow, slow down, slow down. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I love Twitter. I'm, I'm on it constantly. But I think about 10 a week there. That's, no, but so I did the same thing on my team. So when, once I heard that, that Twitter, that, that kind of Twitter information was basically the Satya Patel was the VP of product at the time. And he was being interviewed in a, in a product meetup. I was like, huh, I'm going to try that in my company. So I, I said, we're not running very many experiments right now. I'm going to make sure that my team runs at least three experiments per week. And so I said to my team, guys, we can't control the result, but what we can control is the input that leads to the results. So I don't care what experiments we run, but if we, any week where we don't run at least three experiments, I consider a failed week on the inputs that are going to lead to growth. And any week where we run at least three experiments, I'm going to consider a successful week. Soon as we started that, after three flat, flat months, we, we grew like 60, 70% on growthhackers.com in the next 10 weeks. How big was the team at the time? Uh, probably 12 people. And could you give like an example? Like what's an, exp- like how big are these experiments? Like what's- Some of them are like super easy. So that's, that's, so that's what you're trying to kind of right size the experiments on what, what it takes to put them out. So like an optimizely experiment that we ran um, so we score each experiment on potential impact, how easy is the experiment, and then how confident are we that it's going to work. And so on those three factors, you know, the best one, you're super confident it's going to work. It's going to be really high impact if it works, and it's super easy to run. But rarely sure. do those line up. So like those, those run out really quickly. Like yeah. You've got a, a one or two weeks of those, and then, okay, now we actually have to run harder ones. Right. So I, I had one of my colleagues put in an experiment. We had an email collector on our on our site, and his... His idea, he said, I, I think this is an impact of four. I don't think this is going to really move the needle that much, but we have it at the bottom of the page. Let's try moving it to the top of the page. And um, with Optimizely, it's a really easy one to do. I don't think it's going to be that great, but we got to do an experiment this week. That gave us a 700% increase in number of emails collected per week. And it was, it was really ugly in terms of the design of this collector. And so... Once we saw that big lift, then I said, well, let's, let's actually put a designer on here now. And so our next experiment was redesigning it to actually make it look nicer. Did it go up then or down? I'm it curious. did. It actually okay. went up another 40%. And, but what was interesting is that he, you know, for all those people rushing out to move an email collector from the bottom of the page to the top, he actually moved it back to the bottom. But he pinned it to the bottom. So when you're scrolling, it stayed kind, okay. of, kind of pinned to the browser, but it was designed really nicely. It said which companies are subscribed to this weekly list. And, you know, there's some good marketing copy on there. And so that gave us another boost. So I think that's kind of the idea with these tests is that when something works, you double down, you do more tests like that. When something doesn't work, you kind of mark it up. Okay, we learned, we move on. And so sometimes like pricing tests, for example, give you an example of like a really big test. I acquired a company um, from Kissmetrics called uh it was called Kiss Insights at the time. We changed the name to Qualaroo. We sold it a year ago, but I acquired it under the assumption that these guys just don't know freemium right. And if I, if I set freemium right up on this business, it's going to skyrocket. And so we just have to make the free version a lot more valuable. And then, then when we do that, 
the 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 paper. Yeah, I just had this whole model built out, so I won't go into all the details. But talk about a risky experiment. I spent like million plus dollars on this thing to then go and, and, go, and go engineer wrong? that, and <laughs> it didn't work at all. <laughs> it literally. There was there was almost no increase in demand for the free version when we made the free version a lot better. All it did was sort of suck demand off the paid version. And so you could have said, God, that's the worst experiment ever. It was so expensive. But what we learned was there's not really price sensitivity on this product. I thought there was price sensitivity. There's not. People either need it or they don't need so it. So you can then just go back and go the other direction. So we killed the free version. Over time, we ended up increasing the price on the paid version three or four hundred percent, and a lot of our revenue growth ended up happening from these price increases. Mm -hmm. So, like even a failed experiment leads to the learning that that makes you smarter about different ways to grow the business. Is, is there ever a situation where you are running experiments and it actually takes you down this really dark rabbit hole where you shouldn't be? For example, where I don't know, you're talking about all sorts of bad stuff. And I, I, I'm just trying to like paint U the scenario. Uber-ish, uh, <laughs> like regulator, black layer. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think that can be, that can happen with the product too. It's sort of like, oh, geez, if we just added gambling and porn to this product, it would be even more. <laughs> like, I, I think people need to use judgment in everything that they're doing. And, you know, I, I personally, I, I, I personally have not felt like, uh, I've crossed the line with anything that I, I'm doing. I wouldn't wouldn't feel comfortable kind of crossing a line where, um, but my line's going to be different than other people. It's it, it's subjective. And um, but I, I mean, the good news is that if you kind of listen to everything that I've been saying, it's most of the slimy things are are the fleeting stuff, the the stuff that doesn't actually work anyway. What I'm saying is that long term growth is about understanding the value that yep. you deliver, getting people to the experience of that value. The most powerful experiments are ones that reduce friction to getting to that experience. And so, um, yeah, there, I mean, there, there's always going to be times where you have to make those judgments. But um, I, I rarely get in a point where I'm like, gosh, should we do that or not? Just because my, my mind doesn't go there. And I imagine kind of your, your growth teams and, you know, even just product managers focused on growth that are thinking about this. Like one thing that Remus really likes to talk about is kind of like your your product culture and your product principles and your guidelines right. and your ethos. And like, you understand that and you're shaping it around that and you're driving it, you know, again, back to that, the value you're delivering as a product, right? Yeah. And how do you get people to that sooner? And if it's oriented around that, then it all aligns pretty well. Yeah. So like one discussion that people do have that's along those lines is the Airbnb discussion of, was it, was it ethical when they did reposting onto Craigslist? So somebody posted their, um, People say oh, the terms of service prohibited it. I don't know that. Like, I guess I could go in the Wayback Machine and see that it actually do that. I probably should. I'll do that after this. But, um, <laughs> you know, like, it, assuming that it didn't, I would say, I, I would say it's fine. Like, uh, to me, to me, that's what people are having a, a, a poor experience with finding short-term rentals on, Air, on Craigslist and Airbnb significantly improves it and, why not go to where the people are? So as long as you're, you know, but if they, if they did have like clear lines that they were violating, then, then I think it does cross a line. Like sure. you, do, you don't want to violate those lines. And yeah, I think that we, we've covered a lot, dispelled a lot, uh, a lot of good, actually practical takeaways that like, okay, this actually sounds like good growth, kind of good tactics, practices that kind of every PM should be digging into. Like, I mean, they, they learned everything they need to in this podcast, right? So mm -hmm. we're, we're done. 
Um, but like, if they want to go further, like, where do where do I go? Like, this is a a new kind of way of thinking about cross functional teams, organizations, growth in general. Like, where where do I dig in? Like, right. So like, so hopefully we've at least kind of conveyed the the principles here and sort of the why you might want to do this. It's not easy. I think the you know, what, one of the big risks that I do hear about, I, I haven't experienced too much myself, but I've, I've heard others, is that um, when you're borrowing engineering resources as part of this, or even you have dedicated engineering resources on the growth team, suddenly you have this big product feature push and everybody flocks to the, to the product feature and, and basically you lose rhythm. When you lose rhythm, you, it's hard to get back in that testing tempo and kind of things fall apart. So there's there's definitely this growth master role that's really critical for for keeping the rhythm going. And we actually just launched a course at Growth Hackers called uh, the Growth Master Training Course, part of what we call Growth University. So that's, that's one way to learn more. Um, but I think in terms of just the overall process and kind of breaking everything down, borrowing best practice from a lot of companies, uh, I have a co-author where we just wrote Hacking Growth, and it's a very detailed how-to book on on all of this, and uh, I think it provides a pretty good reference to be able, like wherever you might be hitting a wall, the book can point to the uh, how you can overcome that issue. Cool, yeah, and I was lucky enough to kind of get a, an early look at it. Like, I think a lot of interesting, much more detailed, you know, practical advice there in there. So I think it um, definitely worth worth a, a look if you're curious to learn a bit more. I can't wait to check it out myself. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks again for joining us. Uh, I totally enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on the show today. All right. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a PM topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at practicalproduct at heavybit.com or on Twitter at practicalprod. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 